0: This is comms Day live i'm graham lynch and uh, welcome back to the show for 2021 i uh, hope you had a good break if you managed to get away uh possibly not given the restrictions on travel in australia at the moment uh we've got a pretty big show um lined up for today uh we'll be taking a look back at the last month of telecommunications news with simon ducks and rowan pierce And I'll give you the advance on that. There's a big 5G thread through it. (laughs) I think that portends fairly concisely uh, for what we're going to be talking about for much of 2021. But before we get to that, our future interview for this first podcast of the year. uh, For many of you, Bevan Slattery needs little introduction. He's been a key entrepreneur in the Australian technology scene for two decades now. He founded Pipe Networks, NextDC, Megaport, Superloop, Subpartners. Last time I checked, those companies had a combined market capitalization of nearly $8 billion. Bevan is now helming another one of his new companies. This one's called Sub.co. And it has a very special project underway. The construction of a new undersea internet cable connecting Western Australia to Oman in the Middle East. From Oman, the cable will connect to a range of other cables connecting to the Middle East, India, Europe, and even Africa. Bevan is joining us today to talk about the latest developments and new milestones on this cable. Welcome, Bevan.
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks, Graham. Yeah, we've um, we've now completed manufacturing of the, the whole cable, and... Um, which is, which is pretty big, I mean, it's 9,800 kilometres of cable has been manufactured. And, you know, in, in the middle of COVID, we've also had to do a, a, a number of things. You know, we, we finished the, the, the front hall network in Perth, which, if you know, the quarantine situation in Perth has been quite extraordinary. So the crew were actually based out of Sydney, so they actually had to quarantine for a couple of weeks in Perth to get the job done. So fortunately, we, got, we finished that in December um, you know, just things like the route survey. Um, it's, it, the, it's it's nearly completed, but we've completed um, certainly more than the first half of the route survey. Um, and even then, you know, you've you've got crews that have been surveying for you know for four months now, um, and you've got to do crew changes and do crew changes and fly crews in that have to then quarantine for two weeks. Once they get there, to then jump onto a boat. You know, it's been, it's been such a challenging project. So we've got the cable manufactured, the the seaward duct finish in Perth. We've got most of the route survey done. The route survey for the f- for the first load that's, that's already been sh- being shipped right now or certainly been loaded onto the, the freighter right now, that's been completed. The armoring was consistent and correct with what we thought. Um, so, yeah, so really now that the first load's freighted, we'll finish the the, uh, the the route survey in the next probably three or four weeks, which will confirm whether we have the armoring right on the second load, and then that'll get loaded and kind of on, on the freighter and sent as well. Um, and and installation starts in March, so um, yeah, it's been it's been a big big
0: uh, big year of progress for us in the last you know ten months. So is the installation all one way, going Australia to Oman, or do you work in two directions?
1: Yeah, we're going to work in two directions, um, and that's a that's a shipping logistical kind of issue. We'll actually start. Um, we'll actually start uh, between Australia and Oman and heading back towards Perth. So you'll see the ship out, out of Perth somewhere around May. Uh, at this stage, it's going to be around May, um, May of this year. So uh, yeah, and then once that's completed, um, the second load will kind of meet it in the middle and then kind of head back towards the Oman side. And so the last the last bit of work that we'll do will end in Oman in,
0: in uh, November December. So what specifically governs the choice of Oman as the destination as opposed to other um, parts of the world there?
1: Yeah, it was, it was a – it wasn't an easy decision to make. Um, you know, we, we were looking at either um, – probably Djibouti uh, and Oman were the two. The – you know, one, one thing about cable assets is, is they are 25- to 30-year assets. Um, well, traditionally anyway and certainly you know look at something like Southern cross so these these big long investments that are certainly you know transocean express routes that um, they generally um, or thin routes in this case they, they generally go the full 25 30 years so when we when we looked at it you know we we I really was, I was close to Djibouti, but the, I, I just had a, a few concerns about you know, that 30-year view, you know, how, how secure is Djibouti going to be in the next 30 years? Um, and so really we looked at Amman and it, it, it gives us really good access into the Gulf. And if you see a lot of the cable builds, there's lots of cables. There's probably more cables in Muscat than there is in Djibouti. But what we did to hedge our bets, we put a branching unit in um, off the cable that will allow us to either go to Djibouti or Salala or somewhere like that later down the track. So really for us, we, we, we thought the security longer term was was a bit safer and, and certain when you're making an investment of this size, but we gave ourselves the optionality to then extend it, you know, into either Salala, um, which, which where there's a number of cables that are, that are destined to be coming in over the next three to five years or extending it through to Djibouti and then onwards from there. Um, so, yeah, so that was the main reason for it.
0: So, what specifically are the benefits of having a direct cable into that part of the world as opposed to, I guess, what you have to do now, which is go through Singapore?
1: Yeah, look, there's a couple. There's a couple of really good benefits there. Um, previously, we only had Simulwe three that came out of the west of Perth, um, and and then obviously I, I was involved in Indigo and and the guys at Vocus um, did, did ASC. Um, one of the things, though, it really does it goes up in that Sunda sort of Strait. And one of the things that we've all found, so, you know, I think, well, I think the first benefit is obviously latency. You know, it's the shortest route from Australia to Europe. And that's hands down, that's a fantastic thing. The second part, it, it's all deep water. You know, it doesn't go through shallow areas where there's significant fishing or oil exploration or gas pipelines, oil pipelines, you know, electricity cables, all those kind of things that happen. Certainly in the waters as you head up to Indonesia and into Singapore. So the the in theory the the, the risk of of it being damaged or failure um, through through really aggressive things that happen through those areas. I mean that's that's there as well. So I think that's a really big thing. Um, And, you know, one of the other really good things about it, so, you know, low latency really shouldn't get hit uh, that often. Um, But also, you know, most of it's in international water. You know, one of the problems we do have in in Indonesian waters is if there is a problem, it's the time to repair. You usually find it's two to three months to get it repaired. It's about two months to get your permit. um, And cabotage is an issue through there. And then once you get your permit, the repairs happen pretty quickly at that point. But, you know, Having that outage that's there, and I, th- I think finally, I think one of the advantages is, is it's, it is that diversity. You know, you've got significant diversity away from um, not just the Sunda Strait and kind of Indonesian waters, but there is that real diversity to you know some of the geopolitics. Geopolitical issues that 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 are happening in Asia right now. You know all the things from South China Sea and through. So, one of the really big drawcards for 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 this is not just this express route from from Australia into uh, into the Middle East and into Europe, but it's also you know it really forms part of that that great southern route that people are talking about, which um which provides a lot of stability and, and, and a lot of certainty. I think.
0: And I guess that's also a driver for that proposal for the cable from South America to Australia, isn't it? That's coming out of uh, I think I believe it's um, Chile or Argentina Chile. Um, to, to create that that mesh in the Southern Hemisphere.
1: Yeah, you know, and, and one of the things we're certainly seeing is you know the cloud, the, the the people from cloud or the cloud guys, the OTTs, you know, are driving a heck of a lot of data, and a lot of the data is just you know whether it's um, let's call it machine data, you know, it's 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 a real thing right now. It's not just people watching videos; it's just the um, the IoT devices or the machine-to-machine, you know, traffic's picking up. But absolutely, to your point. You know, looking at you know Chile into Australia, research and education's you know a big part. As in science and research is a big part. Everything from, whether well, it's square kilometer arrays and you know the, all those types of things. But what I actually what I'm I'm seeing. Probably, I think where the most interesting part of submarine cables is going to be, and terrestrial cables for that matter. I think it's, you know, satellite. I think sat. The, the, what's happening in satellite? You know, I used to see hosting these satellite conferences, and you know, there's just all these people wearing cardigans in my, in my mind, anyway. But I mean, in reality, it's pretty different. But what I'm what I've seen in satellite in the last you know year or two years is is completely mind blowing. And um, and you know, again, you look at Chile and those places. Um, I think. We're going to be seeing, you know, um, significant arrays being built uh, across the planet where, um, you know, satellite upstations down, you know, uplinks and base stations, ground stations proliferating. Um, you know, you've seen it, right? You've seen satellites get smaller, um, mm-hmm. and, and, but many, many more of them. I think you're going to see the same thing happening with ground stations. So I think, you know, you're right that, that that's driving a mesh of the networks, but I think what we're going to find is, is not just the cloud operators doing... Their traffic requirements are there, but I actually think there's going to be a a, 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 a bit of an inversion of, of um you know it, the data will probably start really be coming through the clouds in quite some irony through the um through the Leo, MEO, and Geo satellite operators.
0: Yeah. Now with the Oman cable, um, are you at the point yet where you're selling hard contracts on it, or are you still at the preliminary conversation stage?
1: You know, we, we, we'd already you know, sold, some, sold some contracts of it, obviously, to, to get it up. But we actually made a fairly conscious decision to not, um, to not really go out. It's been pretty hard to kind of go out there and sell it. But also, you know, I've got a fair bit of track record in this space. And you, you get your early contracts away. But if you, if you kind of nudge people too much, you know, during the early stages of a, of a project like this, um, people kind of don't take you seriously. I shouldn't say they take; they take you seriously, but but it's when a project's still a year and a half away, and they weren't foundation customers, or two years away, and they weren't foundation customers. Um, it, it's something that's a financial year or two away. You know, what I mean, it's 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 not yet kind of coming on their, you know, on their horizon. So. You know, we, we made a fairly conscious decision not to be too active in the market going out there with with knocking on people's door and buying capacity. So we, we actually, um, now that this has been, this is always a very key milestone for us, you know, when the, when the cable starts getting wet, throwing over the side of a ship, that's that's the point that we know that we're going out there. So our, our sales and marketing campaign really starts in February and March um, and April, and we'll do another, you know, big round of strategic deals hopefully at that point but we're certainly getting a big round of strategic marketing Uh, and then we'll probably kind of dial it back again until uh until near rfs
0: okay now i know you don't um actually presently play in the asia pacific space in in terms of east asia um there's obviously been a lot of interesting things have happened there the last year we had telstra tell us two days ago that they've had record sales in the secondary markets like Taiwan and the Philippines and so on. That seems to be a reaction um, to to the emerging prohibition on landing directly in Hong Kong and people are trying to avoid Hong Kong now. What's your take on that whole situation and where do you think it might head from here?
1: Um, Good question. Look, it, what we've seen, there's just going to be an acceleration. And, look, to be completely candid, that's one of the reasons, you know, I really wanted to do this project. Um, you know, I could just see the, you know, the avoidance of the South China Sea becoming, you know, to me it was, it was a bit of a, an obvious thing that's coming. Um, and, you know, so when we started this project two years ago, um, I could just see that lots of traffic that comes from, you know, east of Asia... Um, isn't going to want to go through the South China Sea, and 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 to be really clear, I'm not, I'm not jumping on one side or the other here, right? Um, but I'm just, this is a rea- commercial reality, that, and Telstra's seen the commercial reality of that with great success in selling, as you said, Philippines and Taiwan and those types of things. So There's a lot of traffic that goes through that way that that needs to get to you know, whether it's India or, or, or Middle East or Europe or whatever it might be, um, that needs to kind of really avoid that route. Now, and, and you know, I think there's, there's more progression to happen and I think there's an acceleration of, of these secondary markets but also this avoidance. And the examples I've been giving people for six months, I said, you know, Indonesia... Has had this cabotage rule, which is part of the frustration we have with going through Indonesia. So it needs to be an Indonesian-flag vessel if you're going to, to install and, and do maintenance. Now, absolutely understand the reasons why it's a, it's somewhat a protectionist thing. You know, you, you want to make sure that. You know, I, get, you know, I don't necessarily agree with it. But it's I, a security
0: I, you thing you know, as well don't um, want foreign vessels playing <laughs> with their cables. <laughs> so, <yeah. laughs>
1: Which is, yeah. Yeah, it's difficult to argue against it, right? As yeah. I said, I don't agree with it, but I, I, you know, I, I can mount very good arguments for it and they could, uh, sorry, against it, and, and, but I'm sure their arguments for it are, mm. are, are very compelling, and certainly to them and to their eyes, to them in terms of security and things. As you said, Malaysia started doing the same thing. Um, you know, China's going to do the same thing. And and you know again it's it's purely about you know China believes that that's their waters and that's their thing and 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 you know I, I'm really confident that um, I'm hoping it's not the case but it, I think the reality says it will be um, they'll be looking they'll be projecting their their their. Their perceived sovereignty or their perceived control and access over over the maritime area there, and that will include cable, submarine cable installation and maintenance.
0: Yeah, and potentially so, in contested waters like around the spread of the Islands and oh, where cables that are actually mean. from Vietnam or the Philippines or whatever oh, affected. Absolutely,
1: yeah. So the whole of South China Sea and the nine you know, the nine dot line. So um, you know, and when that happens, you know, organisations are, are then going to be thinking, you know, do they want? you know, traffic flying over that, you know, obviously, you know, um, people that are, you know, in China and that w- wouldn't have an issue, but there's, there's some nationalities and organisations that would have significant issue with that. So, you know, I, I think that, that growth in, in, in traffic to secondary markets, but also in alternate routes, um, there is, you know, 75% of all traffic that flows from, you know, I'm, I'm assuming the US to Asia goes through the South China Sea, if not more, you know, probably 80 85%. Um, you know that's going to need to find another way. So you know, I, I just think it's going to get more accelerated, more routes that are going to happen that avoid you know avoid the uh, South China Sea.
0: Yeah. Now, so that's the sort of geopolitical situation right now, and you talked about this at some length this week at the Pacific Telecommunications Council conference out of Hawaii, um, and it was a very interesting discussion. You, but you also talked about, um, I, I guess, some of the big challenges facing big tech, and particularly the fan companies right now and and obviously the from from various quarters the backlash against them the um the urge to regulate them more and more not not just in australia but in europe and even potentially the united states um what do you see happening there and what impact might that have on on the international bandwidth market
1: yeah look it's it's that's a really interesting thing. I think the regulation's coming to. to I think the and and the, there's so many areas of regulation that they've kind of um, have you know in some ways avoided over the years. You know, I haven't avoided the regulation, but you know, anti anti uh, or let's call it competitive regulatory, It's been light touch on the OTTs. You know, they the acquisitions haven't been scrutinised necessarily, you know, their, their their vertical integration in the market. And don't get me wrong, you know, capital market, they're doing exactly what they should be, which is, you know, extracting value for shareholders. Certainly in the short term, that's what they're doing. Um, and, and so I'm, I'm not saying that's that, but, but but it's fair to say that I think the regulators until now, you know, the, the regulators have been very much a bold school, you know, understanding of what, you know, what industry is. And I think, you know, the, 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 the incredible growth of, of, um, of the internet and those big, big OTTs is really, I think they've only now kind of caught up with the size and scale and influence they have. So I think competition is there and I think, you know, I think Europe will probably lead the way, if probably not America, it'll probably be Europe that will lead the way on looking at trying to split up some of these organisations, which they did with Microsoft if you go back to 2000, 2001. Um,
0: well, isn't that what precipitated the dot-com crash in 2001?
1: Yeah, that's what I, that's what I said the end of the, yeah. <laughs> the other day. I said, you know, they talked about valuations and market. And I said, I can clearly remember that the, uh, you know, the peak of that, because I, I was, my first company was kind of acquired uh, with a lot of stock and, and a little bit of cash. And uh, so in February of 2000, so I can, I can clearly remember when the antitrust uh, movement came on Microsoft from the EU and you know the share prices of my uh, of my paper wealth went down significantly over the next uh, the next few weeks and the next few years. So you're right. It was the antitrust case against Microsoft from the EU that actually precipitated people P- people believe that it precipitated the dot com crash. Um, so I think you know competitive stuff's going to be there, but I also think you know this freedom of speech um, the uh, it's it's a big issue um, and and it's. it's they have to delicately balance a tightrope of, of you know, controls and to make sure that, you know, that, that anarchists and, you know, kind of complete nutters don't use their platforms for complete nut things. Um, so you do have to manage that. Um, but at the same time, you know, they have to manage censorship, you know, undue censorship, because that's really going to cause um, significant problems. And I think that's where... You know, even I was looking at Google today kind of playing the thing with news, you know, uh, the Australian news media side of it. You know, I've got a lot of really good friends at Google and, and Google's been a tremendous investor in infrastructure and internet infrastructure in Australia and been great for a whole bunch of things. And But, you know, whoever's running their PR on that you know, needs to read the room. You know, uh, right now is not the time to probably be having to turning off Australian news in there because it only feeds into, A, the monopolistic and competitive stuff that's there and, you know, their influence on the market, but, B, the censorship side of it, right? You know, the you know the algorithms are censoring. Well, the algorithms are created by humans. You know, the, the, the machine doesn't make this up by itself. You know, it, these are human-bred algorithms and I'm thinking, gosh, I've... I just would not be leaning over my skis too far right now on on a topic like this because the blowback of that's going to be pretty big. So I think that's a that's a really big area of influence. And if they get that wrong, I mean the you know it, it, you could see that you know the, the regulators and media, the regulators in you know in, in attorney general's departments are going to be really concerned about influence and censorship and things like that. You know the it, it's 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 a bit of a basket case, I think. So I think I think I think they've got to tread very carefully ahead. And like I said, the other point around censorship, they've got to balance that part. And if they, you know, the issues with parla, the issues with, you know, some of those things like that, I, I just think there was probably a slightly better path to tread there, which said, hey, this doesn't breach. This this might be a breach. You've got a period of time to remedy. That's not a day. You know, you've got to you you know do your thing, but you've got seven days to or 14 days or 30 days. In a normal contract, you've got time to remedy because by turning them off like that so quickly, um, you're probably feeding that other side of extremists saying, you know, you're trying to shut us down. It's almost like you're adding fuel to that kind of fire. If there's a a better way in which you can manage it, um, that would have been better because... You know, like I said in the podcast, the risk here is that you know, if 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 the OTTs don't think they can get cancelled, um, you know, you know, think again, and 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 that's a that's a real concern for me for the for the deeper state of the internet and the protection of the internet more broadly.
0: well, you you made that point at the PTC panel session that this goes to the heart of the physical security of the internet because what we've seen in the United States over the past year is repeated um, ingress on, on p- government property, you know, on police stations, on the, the US Capitol itself, just a couple of weeks ago. Um, and, of course, the, the internet is ultimately a physical piece of infrastructure with vulnerabilities. And what you talked about was perhaps the need to raise some awareness on that.
1: I won't go into a lot of detail. Um, but, but, yeah, the point that I was trying to make is the more fuel you add to the fire. And that's why we, we've got to do the right things, but there's, you know, are we able to do it in a way that that causes less angst and tension? Um, be, because you're right, the internet infrastructure is, and I mean, both from a physical standpoint, but also the systems that control the internet, um, you know, there's a lot of trust elements that are placed in those, um, you know, Those rights we spoke about, uh, as I said on the call, you know, um, you know the 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 Los Angeles, San Francisco, Seattle, Washington DC, New York, um, you know, Antifa were, were very, and then you've got on the right side you've got the really big rights in 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 the Capitol building, the takeover of DC. You know, the incident in the US is predominantly in five cities, which is Los Angeles, Silicon Valley, Seattle, Washington DC, and New York. Um, you know, we saw buildings get burnt down, businesses get burnt down. We saw the, the taking over of facilities and things like that. You know, if people were so inclined, you know, you, you could very easily isolate um, cities, even countries with with not a tremendous amount of effort. Um, all you need is a bit of imagination, you know, and you look at what happened in... In, um, you know, if we go back to September 11th, you know, the amount of effort it would take compared to causing that level of anarchy uh, and that level of destruction, you know, you're probably talking round, rounding errors of 1%. And, you know, in terms of effort and planning, um, you know, and so, you know, I'm already seeing a heightened awareness from OTTs about the physical infrastructure, about their their vulnerability, and I think they realise that they're becoming quite vulnerable, and, and, and it's a real, real concern right now. You know, it, the possibility, and the, the problem is all it takes is one person to do one thing, and then they realise the impact that they've had with such little effort and such that you could see people getting emboldened and then, worse, you know, and then coordinate. And any kind of coordinated attack on the physical infrastructure of the internet um, would, would, have, would have really serious, you know, consequences, I think.
0: You know, uh, I don't think a lot of people realise that a lot of interconnect takes place in office blocks in the US, you know, Wilshire Boulevard in Los Angeles and Hudson Street in New York. They're just office blocks on, on the street, you know, we're, we're <laughs> surrounded by dozens and dozens of high-rise buildings. They're not secure facilities at all by any stretch of the imagination.
1: No, you, you, you know, yeah, I'm not going to go into any more than that. Oh, well, they, they were
0: my words, not yours. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. In, in Thailand, the major submarine cables... To terminate on the beach in, in a province that is in a civil war zone for the past twenty years between secessionists and the central government, uh, literally Thailand's internet is in a grey box on a sidewalk on a beachfront boulevard. You know, so so there is a, there is astonishing vulnerabilities here, and and it's it's, it's well, and
1: government regulations forces these cables to land in such a concentrated manner that you know you haven't got to go three four hundred kilometres up and down a coastline to try to find them. They're literally within. You know, two couple of mile blocks of each other on, on, on the areas. I mean, not in Australia, but in another country, you can literally go to the beach and stand there holding the submarine cable that's connecting, you know, their their country slash island to the one of three cables, and you can literally stand there on the beach and you know, near a rock pool and hold the cable. Um, you know, that's a, that's 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 nuts. Um, uh, okay. Yeah, anyway, so look, I, I, think, I think the, the physical um, security of the internet and diversity and redundancy and all those types of things, um, but also active protectionism, I mean, we, we historically we lay these cables and we've got no clue about what goes on whatsoever on that infrastructure. And, and, and yeah, that's why FiberSense is one of the businesses I'm involved in. It's really starting to get kind of a lot of inquiries from a lot of people really quickly, um, you know, so they can actually see what's going on in the network with the drop down.
0: Uh, so on that note, Bevan, thank you very much for joining us today. Awesome. Thanks, Grant. Well, usually uh, on our weekly podcast, we look at the week that was, but of course we've been away for a month. So we're going to be looking at the month that was and to help us out with the first half of that month, Rowan Pearce, the Executive Editor of Comms Day. How are you, Rowan? Good. How are you, Graham? Oh, I'm very good. I'm, I'm, it's good to be back. I, I missed our weekly chats, so I, I'm glad that we've resumed again for hopefully we'll be an exciting 2021. Now, you um, drew the short straw and were the, the, were the, edit, the sole editor of Comms Day uh, over the Christmas and New Year break, and... Um, you uh, covered some pretty interesting stories, all, all with the wireless theme, I, I might add, which perhaps shows you what 2021 is going to be all about. Um, and First off, um, you, you, there's yet more spectrum being allocated on the market, this time in the 3.4 gigahertz range. So can you tell us more about that? Yeah, well, Paul. Paul Fletcher has.
2: I think he did isn't in 2021 the year of 5G. So we'll kick it off with them, <laughs> with some spectrum. So yeah, um, uh, look, there's there's nothing more thrilling than spectrum news, as you know. Um, so uh, essentially, um, what happened was late last year, Paul Fletcher formally designated parts of the 3.4 gigahertz band for spectrum licensing. So this is this is part of the whole process of. Um, uh, defragmenting the band and also the so-called kind of a urban excise where M B N Co is expected to actually give up some of the spectrum that it holds currently that it doesn't use um, for its fixed wireless um, service. So the kind of the, the 3.4 gigahertz stuff in um, some regional areas but also particularly in, in um, you know, urban areas, which means there's going to be a chance for telcos to actually get their hand on it. So I guess, as you'd expect, all the all the M&As are supportive of this process. Um, one interesting thing to note, though, is that um, Telstra is actually pushing for a single, single kind of allocation process, so presumably an auction, alongside the spectrum in the um, 3.7 uh, to 4.2 range.
0: Okay. Um, now, on a related note, um, there's a thing called the 5G Innovation Initiative, And I I understand there's a bit of money associated with that. And where there's money, there's always a bit of interest. So uh, I understand some some telcos have been uh, going after some of those funds.
2: Yeah, it's like telcos love spectrum and money, so... This kind of combines of both, I guess. Um, so, yeah, last year the government said it will put aside $22 million, um, basically for two rounds of this kind of initiative, which is really a kind of response to the parliamentary um, 5G inquiry, so an effort to kind of boost the the local 5G ecosystem. So the government's consulted essentially on the, how the first round should run, and um, one, one thing to know is the MNOs have really made clear that they think that they should have a key role, as you'd expect, either either with their own initiatives or kind of in partnership with other organisations. So Optus, for example, was pretty firm in its submission that, you know, any projects funded under this initiative should involve in an MNO in some capacity. Although it's worth kind of noting that, uh, you know, alongside the MNOs, has been interest, um, I guess, from people like the kind of Logistics Council, as well as like Arkea, which represents the land mobile group. And as we know, the ACMA is actually handing out area-wide licenses for millimetre waves. So I think it would be, wouldn't be would be surprising if we saw some kind of non-MNOs trying to get in on this and actually like fund some private 5G trials, for
0: example. Okay, well, on the millimetre wave note, of course, there's a spectrum auction um, in that space coming up in a couple of months. And uh, with that, I guess... We will see the emergence of an Australian millimeter wave sector, and that's attracting some new companies from the millimeter wave ecosystem here. One of them is called Mavandi. Can you tell us all about, all about them?
2: Yeah, so they're, they're quite an interesting one, and I was trying to think of, um, I was trying to think of some kind of lame joke about making uh, big waves with small waves or something like that, but I couldn't quite make it work. So they were um, uh, a US company, but they actually do have a local presence, including a kind of 5G um, design lab in um, in Sydney as well as an office in Melbourne. So their kind of focus is really, I guess, solving some of the problems with high-frequency bands. Um, they have very strong kind of... Uh, Broadcom heritage, um, and from the beginning, they've been consciously focused on those kind of higher frequency bands. So in the US, they're working with Verizon, for example, on their um, 5G home service. So they're doing things like, uh, uh, one of the interesting things is producing uh, repeaters for wave deployments to essentially s- extend the range or, like, fill in black spots that, um, obviously, millimeter wave doesn't have great propagation characteristics. And Mivand is really positioning these kind of... Um, uh, mmWave repeaters as like a cheap alternative to small cells, example, for example, because you don't really have to like you know put backhaul in and that kind of thing. So it'll be in- interesting to see, um, I guess, with uh, with you know, as as you said, the spectrum options coming up. Telcos have already got like area-wide licenses, so there is going to be a bit of mmWave activity this year, and it'll be interesting to see if Mavandi can actually get their kind of foot in the door with some of the
0: telcos. Okay, we'll look forward to seeing their progress. Thank you very much for joining us today, Rowan. Cheers. Well, we're continuing our look at the month that was. Uh, and we've got Simon Ducks, who's the chief editor of Comms Day in the studio with us. Welcome, Simon. Welcome, Graeme.
3: And happy new year to you as well.
0: <laughs> you too. You too. Um, now, uh, we were just speaking with uh, Rowan um, about some of the things that happened over the break and there was quite, quite a big 5G emphasis to it and, and <laughs> we're going to continue on that theme because um, it was you, you uh, came back from your break um, in the second week of January and it was War to War 5G stories, also, <laughs> nothing changed. And uh, the big announcement came from Telstra who've achieved quite a, um, a big milestone in terms of their 5G network. So tell us more about that.
3: That's right, Graham. it uh, never a dull moment on 5G. And for once, we weren't actually talking about uh, Telstra and Optus doing speed records against each other. But uh, I had a good chat with uh, Chana Senavaratna uh, just uh, a week or so ago following up on uh, the news that um, they'd already announced that they were looking at hitting 75% uh, population coverage by the end of June uh, this year, and they've followed it up saying that they've reached 50% already. So they're absolutely progressing at stonking speed and getting their 5G non-standalone network uh, rolled out. And the interesting thing is that uh, they're obviously, because it's non-standalone, they're able to use existing 4G cell sites, and that's really speeding it up. And the thing that Chano was really keen to emphasise to me was the fact that uh, although we're looking at 2,655 G sites across 100 cities, uh, he wanted to emphasise the fact that they're hitting the uh, regions and country towns as well. And uh, the stat he liked to use was the fact that they're now hitting 2,000 suburbs. And he pointed out to me that that gives Telstra pretty good options the way things are going with people working from home and uh, the way that uh, future office work may be carried out. And I, I uh, pushed him a little bit to try and find out what was happening on the uh, fixed 5G to see if there was any overlap there and essentially that trial is remaining invitation only so uh, he wasn't actually trying to suggest that that was going to be a key thing going forward but obviously it's a good option for them so uh, the other thing uh, that Chana hinted on was the fact that uh, they're going to be very keen to roll out a 5G standalone network this year, and what that means is that uh, once uh, Release 16 is embedded, there's a couple of more things need to be uh, sorted out with uh, the actual standard itself, but that will allow Telstra to have the full benefit of every uh, piece of um, things like low latency and so on that uh, Pure 5G actually uh, delivers. Um, uh, to customers as well so that's that's quite interesting innovation and uh, finally uh, we touched upon uh, the fact uh, I think Rowan actually covered uh, that uh, Marvel Stadium um, uh, Telstra were going to turn into a 5G test bed Uh, so I uh, tried uh, Chana uh, to see about the MCG because Telstra have a long-standing record and he said absolutely they're in discussions with the MCG so I think that one will be watch this space
0: yeah, and of course, um, Optus uh, um, don't want to miss out on that front. They they uh, have their, their branded stadium in Perth, and that they announced uh, in the last couple of days that they're going to be using that as their five G test bed. I guess sports stadia make great five G test beds because you have lots of people in them, and they tend to have a pretty high demand for things like instant video replays and messaging and so on. So they they make a kind of good test case, don't they, for uh, they- mobile telephony?
3: They really do, and uh, uh, in fact, uh, talking with Channa, uh, we were mentioning the fact that at the CES show, Verizon made some big announcements around uh, what they're going to be doing with the gridiron or NFL uh, and some of the 5G initiatives there, and Channa mentioned the fact that because uh, Verizon is a key member of the 5G f- Future Forum, uh, that Telstra were talking very closely about some of those innovations in the stadia, so again, I think uh, it could prove quite interesting going
0: ahead this year. We were just talking with Rowan a minute ago about uh, the millimeter wave space in Australia and how 2021 is set to be quite a big year for it. Now, NBN Co um, are one of the players in the millimeter wave market, and they made a very interesting announcement over the new year break.
3: They did. And uh, the interesting thing, uh, they've done a distance record. MBN are going for distance because, of course, uh, their interest in 5G is around fixed wireless. And uh, what uh, they managed to do was a stable 5G MM-wave transmission at 1 gigabit per second at 7.3 kilometers. And you think, that's, that's a slightly arbitrary figure. But actually, that figure represents... That corresponds to the 90% of customers on its 620,000 premises fixed wireless network sit within. A fixed wireless cell at that distance. So uh, I spoke to MBN about that, and uh, with their vendor partners, they're using this trial to try and help the vendor community really kick on with some of this stuff. They're also looking at uh, some CPE innovations as well uh, to try and maximise some of this. But they actually think they can probably take this further as well. So they actually haven't hit the limit. Uh, we know three months ago, uh, I think they were about four or five kilometres. So that's that's quite interesting as well. But when you're hitting no 90% of your uh, wireless footprint, it's, again, for MBN it's going to give you options. And we have to remember that they also have an area-wide license uh, uh, to do this as well.
0: Yeah, that that is interesting. Um, when the first uh, coverage maps for 5G started emerging online last year, it was pretty obvious that, uh this is for Telstra and Optus, it was pretty obvious they were only getting about one kilometre radius from their initial 5G cells, which I thought was... Not, probably not terribly economically efficient from a capital expenditure point of view so these sorts of innovations are just particularly on millimeter wave because of that um spectrum band the signals do attenuate uh, more quickly as a matter of physics so it's definitely quite a big breakthrough there okay on that note simon thank you very much for joining us today and looking looking forward to uh, a big year ahead absolutely good to see you graham That's it for Day Live this week, our first episode of the year. Looking forward to seeing you again next week and throughout 2021. Goodbye.